Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another Bike Radar podcast. Today is another Tour de France special and we're going to be discussing all the hottest new tech that we're going to see at this year's race. With me to discuss that, I have two of our finest writers, I've got Matthew Loveridge, who is a senior writer for BikeRadar.com, and I'm also joined by our illustrious editor, George Scott. Hello, gentlemen. Hi there. Thank you very much for the, uh, the, the very grand introduction, Simon. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I'm going to be a brown nose. Um, right, so let's, let's start off. What do we think, and we'll start with you, Matthew, what do you think is the big tech trend for the 2020 Tour de France? It's quite a few, actually. Um, We've seen aero bikes merging with lightweight bikes. So, for example, the new Tarmac SL7 does away with the split between aero and lightweight. We've seen a really high level of integration. So a lot of the new bikes that will be making their Tour de France debut this year, for example, that Tarmac, the Amonda, various others, um, they've got totally hidden cables where previously cables were out in the wind. Uh, that's a big trend. Um, what else have we got? Help me out here, guys. <laughs> well, we've got we've got both um, you know lightweight bikes becoming more aerodynamic, as you've alluded to, but we've also seen a couple of uh, kind of fully fledged aero bikes go in the other direction and, and becoming lighter. So there's the uh, the Merida reactor of the Bahrain McLaren team, um, which has gone on a bit of a diet this year, launched just ahead of the Tour de France, uh, and then the Trek Madone SLR. Um, is also significantly lighter than it was last year. So, uh, you know, definitely the big trend for this year is the convergence of aero and lightweight into one do-it-all bike, potentially. And who do you think's been pushing for this? Because we've, you know, for a very long time, we've had aero bikes as fully, as fast as possible, you know, maybe slightly over the UCI weight limit. And then brands have tended to have a lightweight climbing bike, in inverted commas, that can easily hit the 6.8 kilo weight limit but then we often saw riders riding those lightweight bikes on the flat stages and really the aero bikes got a little bit underused so do you think this is brands pushing for this convergence or maybe is is it professionals Matthew what do you think 
It's a tricky one because we know that professional riders can be incredibly conservative with their equipment choices. And you tend to find that a rider who self-identifies as a climber chooses the climber's bike and the ones who self-identify as sprinters choose the aero bike. When in fact, a lot of the time, most of those riders would probably be best served by the aero bike because in the real world, that's faster most of the time. So that's quite hard to say. I think obviously the UCI weight limit is a big factor in this. It's been now years that it's been possible with rim brakes to get lightweight bikes so far below the limit that the limit becomes kind of a bit ridiculous but then things got a bit upset by disc brakes but now we're at that point where most of the lightweight climbing focused disc brake bikes are around that limit Uh, but then quite a lot of the aero bikes are still a good bit above it when you throw discs into the mix so there's kind of there's a lot of competing pressures here and it's yeah it's a tricky one i think it's good from a team point of view if they don't have to be making these choices whether or not they're actually asking for this or this is brands looking at how the riders are choosing bikes and saying like well we want to make sure that they're riding the flagship so let's only give them one choice that makes sense i don't know that certainly seems to be what happened with specialized for example yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously Specialized recently launched the Tarmac SL7, which is the kind of definitive lightweight and aero bike. Specialized says that it's lighter or as light as the old Tarmac, so it can easily hit that 6.8 kilo limit, but it's almost as fast as the Venge. So, George, do you think we'll see the Venge at all in the Tour this year, or is it is that dead and gone? I think that is that is really one of the the interesting questions for the two teams sponsored by Specialized, uh, so the Bora team and the Dakernic Quickstep team. Um, I think you'd imagine with Specialized being the bike sponsor, that absolutely they would want to push their latest and greatest bike, which is the Tarmac SL7, um, and it's a bike that's come at the cost of the Venge effectively. So um, I would be surprised if we saw the Venge at the Tour de France. Um, but that's not to say there'll be some riders who perhaps prefer to have the Venge because Specialized have openly said that um, whilst the Tarmac is more aero than ever, it's still not quite as aero as the, the previous generation Venge. I think, Matthew, you also raised a really interesting point about disc brakes. And I know long-time listeners know that we go on about this all the time and it's still such a huge topic. But, you know, we're in 2020 now and still... Not every team is using disc brakes. And in fact, the teams that everyone sort of expects to be fighting for the win at the Tour de France this year, so that would be Team Ineos, Grenadiers and Jumbo Visma, they won't be using disc brakes, will they, Matthew? No, um, a conspiracy theorist might say that that's because the Pinarello dogma isn't light enough when in its disc brake incarnation. But I don't know if that's strictly true. Again, it might be to do with conservative attitudes. A lot of pros are still remarkably sceptical about discs despite the fact that we know that they are objectively better in every respect except that they have that slight weight penalty so we'll see yeah I think one of these days there's going to be a really decisive stage in the tour or in another major race where a pro loses time on a descent because they don't have disc brakes um maybe you're going to tell me that's already happened Simon well, I was, if you, you know, I listened to a, a few other podcasts, you know, there are some, they do exist listeners, if you, you know, but um, Geraint Thomas said on his recent podcast with Luke Rowe that in a kind of recent stage where it poured with, with rain, Ben Swift has told him that his rim brakes on his carbon wheels basically didn't work. So 
take from that what you will. There was the stage in the in the Quaterium de Dauphiné as well, which was hit by a huge hailstorm and, and thunderstorm um, to the point that, uh, you know, a lot of riders had to, to stop and take cover. But, um, you know, of, of course, we want, you know, the, the, the sun to shine throughout July or, or kind of August and September it is during the Tour de France. But it will be interesting to see if there is a mountain stage that is hit by that kind of weather. Um, is there a difference between riders on rim brakes and disc brakes? You'd perhaps say not because you know these are the most skilled bike handlers in the world. But if you are looking for uh, you know kind of fine margins, marginal gains, then potentially that is one for for riders who are on disc brakes. Um, but again, interesting that the two teams um, you know that we think are going to be fighting out for the yellow jersey simply don't have a disc brake option for the team. And those two teams have also recently been spotted, and it's last year as well to be fair, but they've been spotted using non-sponsor correct special wheels does anyone know anything about those go on george well uh so again at the, the criterium de dauphine which is typically um well it's a very prestigious race in its own right but it's also viewed as the the tour de france warm-up stage race effectively also a chance for riders to, to kind of finally throw their their uh kind of pat in the ring for selection we saw the Yumbo Visma team on what we believe to be Corrima wheels, so extremely lightweight wheels, um, certainly different from the Shimano wheels that we normally see the team riding on. Um, and then Simon, I think you said we saw Ineos again on on lightweight wheels, same as last year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So again, interesting. The two teams on rim brake bikes, who we expect to be fighting out for the win, are on non-sponsor correct wheels, um, perhaps in search for an advantage in the mountains. Um, again, interesting that, you know, both of those teams have moved away from Shimano wheels as well. Um, you know, that's certainly one of the trends we've seen in recent years is not only Shimano dominating the peloton in terms of group set sponsorship, but also in terms of wheel sponsorship with um, Shimano pushing for... for t- I'll just interject <laughs> here. That, I'm afraid, yeah, we, we'll explain that. That's, that's our lovely editor's little puppy. So apologies if anyone was affected by that. The puppy is, all, is okay, just isn't quite getting the attention it deserves because George has had to come record a podcast with us. Just cowering under my desk, uh, begging for treats. Um, but yeah, not, not making for great working from home podcast conditions. <laughs> the joys of social distance podcasting, isn't it? You know, what, what's interesting about it for me is that these wheels... Obviously, you know, we believe that they're being chosen for their kind of extraordinary lightweight characteristics. But in doing so, they are eschewing kind of most of the what we would sort of consider the tenets of modern wheel design, which is kind of wide, blunt, aero rims. Because, you know, the kind of current consensus amongst brands and you know, find websites like bikeradar.com is that a kind of slightly heavier aerodynamic wheel matched with a kind of slightly wider tire is a better all-round package. But Matthew, these these kind of lightweights and these, you know, we think they're Karimas, they're still tubular, relatively shallow or thin V-section rim shapes. You know, what did what do these teams know that we don't? I think there's a very real chance that they're just wrong. I mean, <laughs> um, it, there are lots of factors at play when it comes to wheel choice. There, there'll be lo- some very lightweight riders who are naturally suspicious of deep sections, um, although we know from experience that the best deep section wheels now with fat, blunt, 
cross sections handle much much better than a shallower sharper old school rim design so that's maybe maybe shouldn't be as much of a concern as it is for some of these riders i i have to say i once again i'm slightly baffled by the choices being made by some of these teams because there is so much good data out there about how modern wheel designs are better and yet they cling to their old technological choices um maybe i guess there is also the fact that you want the pros to have this kind of total self-belief in their equipment pros don't like trying stuff that they're not sure about because they're quite they're almost like superstitious about equipment choices and you know perfectly well that if they chose a super modern wide rim and for whatever reason didn't perform on the day they'd find a reason to blame that so (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly something I've heard of. I've heard a number of people talk about how Team Ineos and British Cycling in particular have a real one of their real successes is that they managed to get their cyclists to kind of buy in to the belief in the equipment. And I think, you know, last year's when they turned up with the lightweight wheels, it caused a huge stir and everyone had their eyes on them. And I imagine I've, you know, I haven't ridden lightweights myself, but I have heard of people who have saying that they feel incredible because they have that full carbon construction, those huge, thick carbon spokes, and they feel so stiff and so direct. And whether that translates into actual speed along the kind of flat or upper climb, I think I don't really believe that it does. But if they feel really good, then maybe that's, you know, maybe you lose 2% in aerodynamics, but you gain 3 or 4% in belief in yourself. So I wonder if there's something in that. There's also the you know the potential um, psychological warfare that goes on between teams. So, you know the story with the lightweight wheels last year was that Ineos bought the wheels, um, and I'm sure they bought them at a, a significantly reduced rate. But if other teams see that you know potentially what is already perhaps the best team in the world or the best funded team in the world is then willing to to go out and spend tens of thousands of pounds on lightweight wheels um, for their leading contenders. Then you know does that you know does that kind of, kind of cast a just a, a, a slimmer of doubt in the minds of of some of the contenders as to the equipment they're riding? So that you know there could be just an element of one-upmanship as well over there. Absolutely. Forget about tech that we've already seen. What are we hoping to see at this year's race, Matthew? What if you could see one new product at this year's race? What would it be? Uh, without question, it would be a new Shimano GRS group set. So we were hoping that that would have been released by this point. It's now looking much more likely that there'll be an official release next year. But it's conceivable that we might spot a new group set, which we reckon will probably be called GRS R9200 um, at this year's Tour de France. Um and that will be amazing because obviously we've been waiting a long time. SRAM went 12-speed, Campag went 12-speed. Shimano hasn't done that yet. It almost certainly will with the next generation of Durace. Uh It'll be really interesting to see what they do because Durace sits at the top of the tree for Shimano's component hierarchy and everything below that always follows from Durace. So even if you're not in the market for that top-end group set in a couple of years' time, you might well be buying a £2,000 bike with... 105 say that is heavily influenced by what gets released now Matthew you, you alluded to the fact there that we'd expect it to be 12 speed but what else could we um, perhaps see from new uh, a new Durace group set because I know that's something you speculated on before on, on by radar yeah it's I mean there's lots of directions they could go obviously SRAM went wireless and 
that would be the big question. Is Shimano going to do that? I personally think they probably won't, but they might. Um, there's also a good chance going 12 speed means that they might well shake up their gearing options. Uh, SRAM went with a 10 tooth cog on the cassette and then shifted all of their crankset ratios down to match that, which is slightly controversial because smaller cogs can mean higher mechanical losses, but there are arguments for doing it as well. Uh, it'd be interesting, I, on a purely kind of silly level, aesthetics I think are really interesting. The current Gerace group set R9-100 is, is really nice, but it's quite conservative in its design, whereas its predecessor, Gerace 9000, was really like bold and different to everything else on the market when it came out. I'd really like Shimano to do something a bit weird again, a bit kind of different and original. Um, and then the a final really key question is, would this be the group set where they drop one of the options like current Durace comes in mechanical options, uh, electronic options, hydraulic brakes, hydraulic disc brakes and rim brakes. So that's four different distinct variations. And it could be that we'll finally see one or more of those options go. But at the same time, Durace is the racing group set. And as long as there are teams racing on rim brakes, there's probably going to be a rim, rim brake option. Now this is a very potentially spicy question, Matthew, but do we think we'll see Shimano sticking with its current hollow crank design? I know you wrote an article about an unusual failure that you'd seen. Do you think that'll have any bearing or are we going to see Shimano stick with that? I, I'd be very surprised if they moved away from that. Um, Shimano has dabbled with a carbon crank design in the past, but seems to have decided that that's not the way to produce the optimally light and stiff design. Um, there may have been, there may have, there may be a problem with some holotech cranks, but at the same time, where there have been failures, they've mostly not been, I think, the current generation. So it's an open question. But I mean, holotech is, there's an awful lot of these cranks out there. Sometimes they do break, like all bike components, but I don't think it's a design that's sort of fundamentally flawed. No, I think, as you say, we have seen other brands like Campagnolo and SRAM move towards carbon cranks, but as you say, Shimano sells huge quantities of these cranks and, you know, components in general. And, and, and as, as you say, there will be failures in all brands and et cetera, but it would be interesting. I, I think that, I think, as you say, it, it's surprising when other brands have moved onto carbon and we know that, you know, that the bike industry and consumers value carbon so much and it, you know, it does look very nice. Be interesting if they did a, a carbon crank option, perhaps, but I suppose that remains to be seen. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about other new bikes. Of course, we've had other new bikes like the Merida Reacto released recently. Of course, everyone led with, this is Mark Cavendish's new bike, and then he sadly wasn't selected for the Tour de France. <laughs> a bit of a shame. But, um, George, has there been any other interesting new bikes that have caught your eye? Well, you know, typically we see uh, you know, new flagship bikes launched in the build-up to the tour. Um, this year with the coronavirus pandemic, the launch schedule has been uh, kind of knocked out of place. But we've seen, uh, of course, the Tarmac SR7 from Specialized, which we've spoken about. We've seen the new Trek Amunda, Trek's lightweight bike, which has gained additional aerodynamic features. Um, we've seen the BMC Team Machine morph into more of an all-rounder. So again, both lightweight and aerodynamic. Um, and a bike I mentioned earlier as well is the 
the Trek Madone SLR. So whereas the Amanda has become more aero, the Madone, which is the aero bike, has become lighter. Um, but I think, yeah, potentially it's fair to say there's going to be a couple more bikes that we will spot at the Tour, which haven't yet been launched. So uh, an obvious one is the new or potentially new Canyon Air Road. Um, you know, this is a bike that we have been waiting for for a long time and we assume is coming because we saw it teased um, intentionally or not uh, in a Zwift advert at the start of the year. But we also saw, um, I think, Warren Bargui of the Arkea Samsic team riding it at the at the Dauphiné. So, of course, if we've seen it at the Dauphiné, it's likely to say that you know we're going to see it at the Tour de France as well. Um, and another bike we saw at the Dauphiné not being ridden but propped up outside the Israel Startup Nation team bus was the Factor Ostro. Um, they're both bikes that you wrote about on Bike Radar, Simon. So, um, you know, what are the kind of standout features of the new, potentially new, we should say, Canyon and Factor Ostro? So I think with the Canyon, it's quite an interesting bike because the Canyon Air Road that exists now has been much copied. It it kind of managed to combine, it was, it was you know, very, very aero, but light enough. It had nice clearance for nice big chunky tires. And so it was a very popular bike, particularly within the teams that use it. It remains a very popular bike. You know, Matthew van der Poel races on it and does quite well. Um, I think the newer one, is more evolution than revolution it's the tube sets look deeper it perhaps if it hasn't gained weight it might have not lost any weight and maybe more aero for the same frame weight but it comes at an interesting time when as we've kind of talked about other brands have been moving towards convergence of lightweight and aero and trying to make their aero bikes lighter and i think that's the direction factor appear to have gone with this new bike that we believe is the ostro it kind of loses the really radical features that Factors One aero bike has, like the split down tube and the kind of uh, semi-external steer arrangement. Uh, for a much more conventional deep section aerofoil down tube, aerofoil headset, kind of wide stance fork, and then a kind of seat stay and top tube arrangement that's much more tuned for, as we like to call it in the industry, vertical compliance. But we did have a few comments at the bottom of that piece saying that it looks like every other bike. And there's a kind of opinion sort of floating around commenters for a while that all bikes are kind of ending up looking the same. And there's, and it's because of design convergence where of course they're all optimizing for the same things and within the rules, therefore you get the same designs, but bikes like hopes HBT have shown that there is space within the rules to make radical, radically different bikes. And of course, factor, with its split down tube design has things like that. So why do we think all bikes look the same, Matthew? Or do you believe that is true? Uh, Partly it is that manufacturers copy each other quite considerably. When a really influential brand launches a bike, others tend to follow. uh, And they, they kind of latch onto certain features like dropped seat stays were, I I would argue probably popularized by BMC. Uh, So, a number of BMCs came out with them quite a few years ago now, and now they're on almost every bike. Not every single one. There's still bikes coming out like the new Trekamonda that don't have dropped seat stays, but it's a it's an easy feature for a designer to pick because it means it's a good way to add, in theory, compliance, lateral stiffness, because you've got a very small rear triangle. It's very easy to make a small triangle stiff, and in some cases there may be an aerodynamic advantage as well. So you can see if you were drawing a new bike design, why you would 
go with that feature because there is a proven set of boxes you can tick with that. I do... I don't know what the solution is to make bikes more diverse. I sometimes wish that the UCI rules were broader, less prescriptive, but then it is also down to the creativity of the bike designers. And we occasionally see really wacky stuff, but it often sits a bit outside the kind of road racing, pro cycling side of things. So you end up with bikes like the Canyon Grail gravel bike, which is insane with the double-decker handlebar. And I think it's great that bikes like that exist, but in, in pure pro racing, we don't get much like that. And I, you know, I always think that a lot of these bikes tend to look the same because everything's painted black or not painted and just has a clear coat. And, you know, that's generally down to weight savings again, is that, you know, consumers and professionals seem to put a greater value on having a slightly or marginally lighter frame set than they do on having a frame set that looks really, really cool, but weighs kind of 200 grams more. George, I don't know if you had any kind of personal thoughts or feelings on this. Well, I mean, going, going back to the point about, um, you know, all bikes looking the same, you know, do we, you know, my question is, do we overstate that or do, do commenters or people overstate that? You know, if you look back to the seventies and eighties, all steel bikes look the same, you know, bikes have looked the same since the safety bicycle was invented over a hundred years ago give or take. I think a few minor differences here and there as to where the, the seat stays are placed, um, you know, potentially is overstated. Um, I mean, you guys will, will certainly ride a lot more bikes than I do um, on the bike radar test team. So I suppose my question is, even if a bike looks the same or two bikes look the same, how does that translate in terms of their, their ride and their feel? Surely there's much more at play in terms of both comfort, geometry, handling, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I don't want to put myself out of a job, but the differences between road bikes generally can certainly be overstated. And an awful lot of road bikes are very similar to an awful lot of other road bikes. It's our job as testers to try and differentiate between them and educate the public on why you might buy one over another. But if you look at very basic specs like geometry across the spectrum of different road race bikes, for example, there actually isn't much variation. It would be really shocking if a if a manufacturer of race bikes suddenly came out and was like yeah we're going to make a, a, a road bike with a 69 degree head angle because we've decided that that's going to be faster on mountain descents it'd be really interesting if somebody did do that but there seems to be very little kind of desire amongst bike designers to push things on that front which is quite in contrast to mountain bikes for example where we've seen a huge transition over the last few years towards ever longer slacker bikes it's just not happening on the road front and basically most road bikes fall within quite a narrow set of ranges in terms of frame angles and reach and stack i think yeah i i i would broadly agree with that i i think like you say the differences between road bikes because there's there is a kind of industry consensus as you say around geometry that does tend to mean that you know many or most road bikes kind of behave in quite a similar way and therefore do ride in a similar way and so the differences are more subtle that's not to say the differences aren't kind of ones that you would feel or notice when you were riding day to day you know the difference between a good bottom bracket and a bad bottom bracket can be huge to a consumer but obviously it doesn't necessarily you know provided it's all working correctly it shouldn't be a big difference so yeah, and like you say, there isn't the 
experimentation with geometry that we see in the mountain biking world. And maybe there will be at some point, but right now we do certainly seem to be sort of, we've either reached the nirvana of road bike handling or we're stuck in a rut. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, I, I think one area of innovation though is around wheels and tires. It used to be the case that everyone just knew that tubulars were the fastest choice because that's what the pros used and that's what the pros have used for over a hundred years and that is what the pros still use or is it matthew what is going to be happening in the world of tires this year the vast majority of pros are still riding tubular tires so that's a tire that's glued onto the rim in the last couple of years we've seen quite a few teams dabble in tubeless technology which is a clincher without a tube and that's usually running sealant and we've seen for example specialized last year saying that they had found that their tubeless tires were faster in the real world than tubulars which would be a really strong argument for a team to be riding them and then to further confuse things there are a very small number of pros riding conventional tubed clinches as well um i know that this season this very abbreviated season, there have been at least two wins by specialised sponsored riders riding the latest Roval wheels, which are clinchers with inner tubes, which apparently are very fast, fast enough to win a race. But that's a really surprising choice, particularly as the disadvantages of running a clincher setup haven't gone away. Like, you still can't ride a flat clincher tyre. It's just not an option. George, what do you ride? You must have your own mechanics. I imagine you only ride the simplest, <laughs> finest Italian cotton tubulars. Is that correct? I wish I wish that was the case, Simon, but it's unfortunately it's not, not a perk of the job. There are perks to this job, but that's not one of them. Um, so what do I ride? So on my road bike, for, for the most part, I've still got tubes, um, although on, on one of my road bikes, I do have uh, a set of Mavic tubeless wheels. Um, one of the UST wheel sets, they introduced a couple of couple of years ago which um which made mountain tubeless tires you know an absolute piece of cake um but certainly on my gravel bike um i have got tubeless tires um and really for the everyday rider when we're looking at ever wider road and gravel tires you know that seems like a real easy win for for the likes of you you and me um you know whether we'll see tubeless adoption widespread in the pro peloton you know i think that's still to be seen as we said, you know, throughout this podcast, pro riders are very conservative. So seeing mass adoption of uh, a completely new technology, but also you have to remember a technology that is the only contact point with the road. That seems like quite quite a big step for riders kind of obsessed over, over tiny details. For me, I think the main reason we don't see pros riding tubeless or clinchers more often is because tubular wheels are lighter. And I don't think pros are ready to give up that kind of 150 grams or, you know, however much it is to ride a tire that even if they, you know, they may well have seen the data and they believe that the, the clincher and the tubeless tires on their own have less rolling resistance. I think they still want that weight saving. And I believe that to be the case because we often will see pros happily run tubeless tires or clincher tires in time trials where they're not quite so concerned about weight. And they know that those rolling resistance gains will help them go faster. Um, I think the evidence is clear and has been for a long time that clinchers and tubeless tyres can be faster than tubulars. And this is mainly because 
hysteresis is introduced by the glue that's used to glue tubulars onto the rims and obviously clinchers and tubular systems don't have this but I think we won't see a mass adoption unless sponsors push for it. Now that may well happen because if the if the sponsors stop making tubular tires the pros won't be able to run them but I don't it would take a brave sponsor to turn around to their team and say you cannot have this technology to which you have been so used to riding. I mean is is there an argument that uh that wheel brands and tire brands perhaps still aren't sure themselves because uh you know Matthew alluded to the fact that specialized um or some specialized sponsored riders were using tubeless technology this year but have perhaps switched to traditional clinchers this year. Um, but Matthew also tested the new S-Works Tarmac SL7, um, a £10,500 bike, which didn't have tubeless wheel specs on it. So is there is there a point there that you know, perhaps even the brands aren't sure which is best? Yes, I think there definitely is. And I think the issue with a tubeless tyre is that the tyres tend to be, the tubeless tyre itself tends to have to be slightly kind of stiffer and have a, a bead that cannot stretch. Uh, in order to keep it on the rim, obviously. And so that stiffness introduces, you know, it requires more energy for that tyre to deform and then, you know, bounce back. And that can cause rolling resistance. But I think, you know, so for example, on my time trial bike, I'm still using clinchers with latex inner tubes. But the tyre that I'm using, a Vittoria Corsa Speed on the front, is a tubeless ready tyre. And were you to run that tubeless, you would then have the added benefit of a little puncture protection from the tubeless sealant. But of course, a Corsa Speed tyre is not a high mileage tyre. It doesn't have a puncture protection belt and it isn't really appropriate for road racing. It's a dedicated time time trial tyre. So I think in the road racing space, it's less obvious that tubeless, a a kind of road racing tubeless tyre, like the Continental GP5000, is a better balance than something like a specialized turbo cotton or a you know a continental competition tubular the gains are not going to be large enough so it's a kind of really interesting one i do think the punctures thing is actually really interesting because what really matters with punctures is reducing the average overall number because if and, and if you if you've got a tubular setup where the vast majority of like minor punctures are effectively self-healing, then even if that wheel system were very slightly slower, it might be that not puncturing is getting you to the end of the race. And that's not to be ignored. Whereas if you puncture your tubular tyre, I mean, I know that there are situations where pro teams have run sealant in tubular tyres, but by and large, tubulars are not really designed to have sealant inside them. And you've got the problem of like, once the sealant's in there, you can't really get it out once it dries out. So it's not a system that's optimised around sealant, whereas tubeless in a tubeless system, sealant is inherently part of how it works. And so there could be an argument if you never puncture you never have that awful situation where you're in a race-winning situation and you lose it because of a stupid equipment failure. That, that, that's certainly the thing we don't want to see at the Tour is the race decided by equipment failures. Um, but I think the really interesting stage from a tech point of view in this year's Tour is the penultimate stage, which is effectively a mountain time trial or uh, you know, 30 kilometres of kind of rolling or, or draggy roads followed by a 6K climb. 
Um, you know, Simon, you're, you're our uh, time trial aficionado in the bike radar team. You know, what do you see riders using for that stage? A time trial bike, a road bike, or perhaps both? It's, it's quite a hard one to call. I think, I think the fastest riders will stay on a time trial bike that's kind of been built to be as light as possible. Um, I think some people will be tempted to swap bikes at the foot of the climb. Now, that might work out, but of course, it's it's quite a risk. And I think we might, if we remember looking back to the kind of world championship time trial that Tom Dumoulin won a few years ago, that finished on top of a very significant hill. And of course, he just powered up it on his giant Trinity time trial bike with full disc wheel and full aero setup. He just powered up it in the position. I think if the riders are riding fast enough, which, you know, being the Tour de France, they may well be, then it's probably faster to ride up in the time trial position and stay on the stay on the time trial bike. But then, you know, we used to see quite often in Paris-Nice riders using modified road bikes with kind of clip-on triathlon bars for the Col d'Etsy time trial. So it's a really, it's going to be a really, really interesting one. I suspect we'll see a lot of lightweight autobahn rear disc wheels with rebadged with other sponsorship names. I do think that psychological thing we were talking about earlier is going to come into play quite significantly in a stage like that because there will be riders who just can't get their head around the idea of riding a TT bike up a mountain and therefore they'll be like, well, I have to be on my climbing setup. And so regardless of what is actually faster, they'll be much happier on the road bike. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the smaller riders for whom the kind of the, t- the bike weight is a bigger percentage of their total rider plus bike weight for them theoretically they have more to gain from switching to a lighter bike but i still think it i don't know how much the pros time trial bikes weigh but if you could get it down to under seven and a half kilos the kind of extra 500 700 grams that you would gain by switching to a 6.8 kilo road bike is that worth more than the kind of, you know, maybe 10 seconds you lose by slowing down, getting off, changing bike, you know, the energy you expend having to get back up to speed, you know, I'm sure they'll, you know, there will be, there will be a team of data scientists behind every team running the numbers and telling the riders X setup is faster, but you're right. Whether the riders will believe it or not is another matter. It's it's a really interesting stage profile from that perspective. So yeah, it's a 36.2 kilometer stage, uh, starting at 290 meters elevation. Uh, and then effectively there's a 25 kilometer drag up to 611 meters elevation, where you'd assume that a time trial bike will surely be faster. You know, it's going to be one or 2% average. Um, then there's a short descent, but then you do get onto the final climb, which is 5.9 kilometers at 8.5%. So it's of a significant gradient where being on a lightweight bike could help. Um, but it's also a really interesting point in the tour. It's the penultimate stage. So it's effectively the last stage where the race can be won or lost. So, you know, if we get to a situation where the time gaps are small going into that last stage, then, you know, tech choices could potentially play a big part in who wins the Tour de France this year. Um, you know, we would have been through many mountain stages to get to, to get to stage 20. And often the time gaps are, are too big by that point. Um, but certainly that'd be one to watch from a tech perspective to see to see what happens, see what riders do. 
Um, so that's a really interesting to one to watch out for because I think from from a parkour perspective, you know, this year we don't have any cobbles, which is always interesting from a tech point of view. Um, and of course, there are lots of mountains. I think it's been described as one of the hardest tours for years. Um, but for me, this is one of the stages to really kind of look out for and see what happens. Right. Well, are there any kind of other general tech trends that anyone's kind of looking forward to? Obviously, we've kind of talked a lot about bikes, but how about clothing, kit, shoes, helmets? Matthew, have you got any, anything you're looking out for? So I've got a stupid one, which has nothing to do with performance and the cycling side of it. But team cars can sometimes be entertaining. And I will be very disappointed if Ineos Grenadiers don't come along with their 4x4 and steam up the mountain in clouds of diesel smoke. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, we, we expect to see it. And as you say, I, would, I too will be extremely disappointed if we don't see that. If, if that does happen, it'll be it'll be vaguely interesting, depending on how much you're into these things, to see whether they make any uh, kind of modifications to that car to to kind of cater for the tour. So, uh, you know, it's it's been a bit of a thing for for Ineos or, or previously Team Sky to have uh, you know some crazy car at the tour, whether it was a Ford before or a Jaguar. Um, a couple of years ago, they had a Jag, I think it was convertible, modified um, to carry two time trial bikes on the roof for the, for the final time trial. So yeah, will we see the the four by four? Probably. Will it have any, any interesting mods? You know, we'll have to wait and see, but I think the fact that the team's renamed itself after that vehicle perhaps suggests that we might see uh, something interesting there. Well, as people love to say, the tour is the tour and there'll always be something bonkers going on. So I think that's probably all we've got time for today. So that just leaves me to say thank you to, Matthew and George for joining me on this podcast today. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Simon. And thank you to you for listening, of course. And if you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to leave us a like, subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And of course, if you have any comments, head over to bikeradar.com, leave them on one of our many excellent Tour de France articles. And of course, thank you very much for listening. See you again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.